Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. Pastor Kurt, you know, I've been in church a long, long time, and I can never remember a Sunday in church where there were three musical numbers and I didn't know any of them. You realize how blessed we are with a wide variety of music that we offer on Sunday mornings and a wide variety of videos that Kurt chooses before the service. We are a flexible group, a tolerant group, a loving group, and I think that's how it should be. It's my privilege to open God's Word and begin by reading from John chapter 17 today. I'm going to begin with verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. It's fairly long, so please bear with me. Jesus is praying all of chapter 17, and we join the prayer midway. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is that truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is praying for the eleven. They just celebrated the Lord's Supper. The arrest is a couple hours away. Judas has left to become the betrayer. And Jesus is praying for the eleven. And then he shifts gears in verse 20 to pray for future believers and the future church. And that prayer goes like this. My prayer is not... For them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may also be in them and that I myself may be in them also. Friends, the word of the Lord. A rabbi, a Pentecostal pastor and a priest found themselves hired as chaplains at the University of Montana. They met 
every week on Wednesday for coffee and to just talk shop and encourage each other. On one of those Wednesdays during their talk discussion time, one of them made the comment that preaching to people is really kind of easy. What would be a real challenge is if we would attempt to convert a bear. And as the discussion ensued, a a contest was created as to who could convert a bear. They all agreed that in seven days they would meet back together to report in. Seven days later, they get together. Same place, same room, same time. Father Flannery, the priest, goes first. He's not looking too good. Scratches on his face and all across his arms. He's got a black eye. He says, you know, I started reading the catechism to this bear in the woods. And before long, he charged me. He was angry. And as he knocked me down, I was able to get some holy water and sprinkle it on his head. And he became gentle as a lamb. And the bishop's coming tomorrow to give him first communion. The other two laughed and said, wow, that's amazing. And then Billy Bob, the Pentecostal pastor, went second. Now, Billy Bob looks worse than Father Flannery. He's got an arm in a sling. He's walking with a cane. He's got two black eyes and scratches everywhere. He says, you know, I started preaching to this bear, and I used my best fire and brimstone. I was just getting warmed up when he got upset and charged me. We began to wrestle, and we tumbled down the hill into the creek. And that's when I pushed his head under and baptized him in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when he came up, he was gentle as a lamb. And we praised the Lord the whole afternoon. And then it was Rabbi's turn. Rabbi was in tough shape. He's in a wheelchair, has an IV in his arm, both legs are in a cast, one arm in a sling, he's got two black eyes and scratches everywhere. He's not good. He opens his mouth and says, well guys, circumcision may not have been the best place to start. Sometimes knowing not what to do is as important as knowing what to do. For nine years, I was the pastor in church in Bakersfield, California. I was going through my doctorate degree work in church growth, and we tried lots of stuff. And I learned lots of stuff not to do. And today I've been asked to talk to you a little bit about our future outreach here at NCC. You see, about two months ago, the board moved me from part-time, where I came and helped just on Sunday, to half-time. And it expanded my responsibilities from Sunday school and helping in worship to teaching the Bible study class Wednesday at 5 upstairs, and you're all invited, and also to putting together an outreach team and a plan for us to reach out into the community around us. And that's in process want to be part of that, speak to me, please. In church growth, I learned a lot in class. I learned even more what not to do and what to do when we tried it. But church growth begins with a a foundational statement that says, healthy things grow. Healthy babies grow. Healthy plants grow. Healthy churches grow. And yet 80% of the churches in America are declining. 
And God wants his church to grow. So we have to pause and ask the question, where is the pinch? If God wants a church to grow and 80% are declining, what's going wrong? Well, I learned pretty quickly that uh, the place to begin is with the verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who attempt to build it labor in vain. Or better said, we can't do this without God. And if God doesn't do it, we're sunk. I like to say, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. Church growth is a collaboration where God's people are surrendered and yielded, and God reaches down and joins them, and then God does something that only God can do. Now, when I talk about church growth, I'm not just talking about width. I'm talking about width and depth. They both count. It's not just about filling all the seats in the room. It's about people deepening their commitment and understanding to who God is and what he's calling us to be and do. It's both of those things. You see, the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of its non-members. Think about that. The great commandment, the great commission. They remind us, they guide us, they send us. And the very word church in Greek is ecclesia. It's a called out group. It's not a called in group. Although us gathering on Sunday is God's idea. He calls us to meet together. He calls us in together. But it's so that we will take care of the wounded. It's so that we will further our education and understanding of God's word. It's so that we will be refocused and recentered and recharged before we're sent out to the mission field. I want to share with you three principles that Jesus prays for his church in today's text. And my assumption is, because Jesus prays this for the future church, that we, a future church, should focus on some of these things. Takeaway number one. Today's church should reflect God's glory. Now, the word glory in Greek is the word doxa, from which we get our word doxology. We sing the doxology, we sing glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Seven times in chapter 17, Jesus uses the word doxa. He's talking about his glory. He's talking about God's glory being revealed in the future believers and churches. Well, let me back up for a second. In the Old Testament, God's glory and presence is seen in a variety of ways. It's seen upon the mountain when Moses goes up to get the tablets. And he comes down, his face is bright, shining. He's been in the presence of God. It's seen as the exodus, exit from Egypt in the exodus. And he leads him with a cloud and fire. And then God gives instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And once that's built, that becomes God's home. His presence and glory lives in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a box not much bigger than this. And they carried it with two poles on each side. And when they went into battle, they took the Ark of the Covenant because that meant God was going with them. And they were nomadic. So they built a tabernacle that was portable. And God's presence in that Ark stayed with the tabernacle as they moved. But then they came to the point in history where they built the temple. It took 47 years to build the temple. And when the temple was completed, 
God moved from living in the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And that was a little room up front and church had a curtain across and nobody could go in. That's where God lived. Now, one priest once a year went in to offer the sacrifice for all. But there was a separation between the people on this side of the curtain and God on that side. But the scriptures tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, crucified for the sins of the world, that curtain that separated God from the people tore from top to bottom. And God's presence came out of the Holy of Holies, and it went into the hearts and lives of those who believe and follow him. Today, God's glory lives inside of those who belong to him. And when we come together in church, we bring that glory with us. Not only do we bring God's glory, the Bible tells us we can pray it down. There are examples in the Bible where the people pray and God's presence and glory comes into a situation. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher in the 19th century. Thousands upon thousands would come to hear him preach. And thousands upon thousands were converted through his ministry. Someone once asked him the secret to his power. And he said, follow me. And they went down the steps underneath the sanctuary. And he cracked open the door. Because inside there were 70 to 80 men and women sitting in chairs, heads bowed, eyes closed, praying for what was going on upstairs. That was the source of their power. And they weren't praying for Spurgeon to be eloquent or emotional or powerful. They were praying for God's presence to fill the room. Because you see, there's nothing Kurt or I can say that can convert anyone. It's God's presence that softens hearts. It's God's presence that touches lives. And sometimes he works in us, sometimes despite us. But it's that presence of God that touches people. I once went to church at Church on the Way. It's in Van Nuys, California. Uh, Jack Hayford was the pastor and built that church up really large. He's a, a big name evangelist. And during the service, I was surprised that the altar call to ask people to make a commitment to Christ came before the sermon. I thought, well, this isn't going to work. And about a dozen folks went forward to receive Christ. And I thought, hmm, maybe I need to reprogram. Maybe it's not about the message. Maybe it's about God's presence. Maybe it's about what visitors experience when they watch God's people worship, sing and pray. I think, yeah, that must be it. God's glory, when it fills the room. You see... In about 40 minutes or so, you all are going to clear this room, and God's not going to be here anymore. You brought him in, you're going to take him out. And Monday through Friday, Pastor Kurt's going to be upstairs working in a room where God is no longer there. It's not this facility that's holy, it's each of you. And when you come willingly, and together we become the body of Christ, God's presence is here. And then there are some who I pray will be praying that God's presence comes down during the service 
and is palpable. I had a seminary classmate who was a stutterer. I thought to myself and probably even said out loud to a couple of my buddies, how is this going to work? Is he ever going to get a chance to be in a church? And how will things go? His stuttering was bad. Well, I lost track of him. You know, we all graduated from Dubuque and went to different states. Most of us never heard from each other again. But at my 25th class reunion, somebody mentioned his name. I hadn't thought about him in years. Yes, the classmate who stuttered. I said, where is he? He said, well, he's over in this town, and his church has tripled in size. And I said, really? How did he get healed of stuttering? And the guy said, well, that's just it. He still stutters. But you should have felt the presence of God when I walked into the room. It's the presence of God that touches and changes lives. And I've witnessed it, and so have you. Takeaway number one, God's church should reflect God's glory. Takeaway number two, God's church should be united in love. And that's not because Jesus wants peace on earth. Do you know, friends, that Jesus said, and I quote, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. No, Jesus' prayer for unity in his church is for the sake of the church's witness in their community. Don't know if you're aware of this, but the non-Christians and believers who go to other churches are watching us. And we're fighting amongst ourselves. They don't want to have anything to do with us. Now, I understand as I look out there, you all believe a variety of things. Some are Republican, some are Democrat. Some are pro-life, some are pro-choice. And we can disagree on a long list of things we call non-essentials. But what we choose to agree on, the list is really short. That is that God's word is in the Bible, it's inspired, and it's God's truth. It means we believe God gets to decide what's right and wrong and draw the lines where he chooses. God's in charge. It means God sent Jesus down because we had sin we couldn't get rid of until Jesus died on the cross to take it. It means that when we belong to the Father, he gives us a ticket that we can use one day to get into heaven. But better than that, it means God's presence is with us no matter what we're going through until then. Those are the essentials. On those things we agree. We unify in love on the essentials while extending liberty to everyone here to disagree on the long list of non-essentials. That's how we're unified in love. We're not all alike. We don't all believe the same things. But concerning a short list of things that matter spiritually, we choose to be on the same page. What is this church's reputation in Naples? I've been here a little over a year. I've snooped around just a little. Ask a few questions at the cafe. Every Wednesday I eat at one of these places on 5th. Ask them questions. The good news is this church is seen as warm and loving. Warm and loving. And you know whose fault that is? Pastor Kurt? 
He's a warm and loving pastor. And if a pastor stays any place for a decade or longer, the church begins to reflect the leader's personality and priorities. Before COVID became our new normal, at the end of the service, he would say, now don't let anyone leave the sanctuary after church without first putting some love on them. Now, what does he mean when he says that? He means, I know you've already figured out who you want to talk to when we stop talking up front. But before you talk to people you want to talk to, will you pause and go talk to the people you don't know first? Ask them some questions about who they are, what they do. Get to know them just a little bit. Tell them you're glad they're here. Warm and welcoming, loving. That's who you are. That's who we are. And I think God's smiling because of that. Jesus prayed his church would be like that. And I think this church really is. Takeaway number three. Jesus prays that his church would be set apart and on assignment. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that to be holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And when God allowed us into his family, we surrendered our rights. Like the Apostle Paul, we no longer live. It's now Christ living in us. And we're the stewards and the servants to the real master. And he has left us here on earth because there are things he wants us to be doing with his guidance. On assignment. I could conclude today by talking to you about Brandy Bates. Brandy was a ninth grader when I moved to Solvang, California to be the youth director, and she came to church. Her mom didn't come, but Brandy came. And in the subsequent four years, she went on three short-term mission trips, and then we sent her to Japan to work with our sister church and teach English. And after college, she felt God's call and became a full-time missionary in Romania. She's been there over 25 years. I could end today by talking about Eric Gundy. Eric was my youth director when I went to Bakersfield. And when we started a focus on outreach, God touched Eric's heart. And he and his wife came to the board, and we laid hands on them and held the ropes as they went to the country of Albania, to Urseca specifically, to start an orphanage for kids. And two years after that, I was privileged to be part of a group of 10 men who went there to put in the electrical, the plumbing, the heating, the windows of this orphanage. Not because the building was all that important. It was just the means for the people to gather so that some hearts would be touched and changed for the kingdom. I could talk to you about Ralph Hawkins. Ralph was a seventh grade, tall, slender, nerdy kid. But he was in my youth group in Covington, Louisiana. And I kind of came alongside him because he got picked on a lot. Before you know it, he and I met for a pizza buffet once a month. He loved pizza. That was the reason he came. But after about a year, he and I had become friends and talked about a wide variety of things. God touched his heart. He's been a pastor in Macon, Georgia for 22 years now. God does stuff like that. But who I really want to talk to you about today is Merle and Luann 
Ruas. I arrive in Bakersfield, this big downtown church facility, but not many people. And a large group of people who remember the golden days and wanted to return there. And each had their own, uh, I think, personal idea of what that meant. But I wasn't there long, and Merle and Luann made an appointment, come in and talk to me, and they said, we feel like God's asking us to start an outreach to special needs adults in Bakersfield. And Bakersfield's 450000 or it was then. And I said, sure, go for it. What do you need from me? They said, well, we need a little room to meet in, and we need a little money in the budget. I said, you got it. You know, one year later, there were 20 special needs adults coming to their Sunday school class. Luann would play the piano, and they would all sing. And Merle would do a short lesson. And then they would focus on whose birthday it was. And once a month, they did an activity together where it was going to the mall or wherever they went. And by and by, they became a big part of who the church was. They would come to the third service, which met in the gym. It was the praise band contemporary service. It was loud. It was pretty casual. They'd all sit together up front. I learned pretty quickly not to ask a rhetorical question because they would shout out what they thought the answer was. About once a quarter, they'd come up front and sing. Come up on the stage. It was about four steps up. Stand in two rows. And I have to say, they were awful. Awful. They couldn't stay together. They weren't on key. And as I looked out among the congregation, my adults were all crying. And I was crying too. And we were touched not because of their musicality, but because they sang as if they believed the Bible was true and as if it were really, really important. No thought for what the person next to them thought of their singing ability. Some sang too loud. Some were off key. Non-pretentious. All the way. One time, Merle told me, you know, my entire class rode their, bike, rode their bikes to church because it was Easter, and on Easter, the public transit didn't operate in Bakersfield. So the class in advance decided we're all going to ride our bikes to church. Well, the following Sunday, I brought Pam up on the stage. Now, Pam was large and loud and kind of the spokesman, and I knew her well because she was my date six consecutive years to the church's father-daughter Valentine's dance. And I said, Pam, would you come up here and talk to me? And she came up on the stage, and I said, a little bird told me that last week on Easter, your entire class rode their bikes to church. You know what she said? She said, really, a bird told you? I said, let me back up. Someone told me that last week you rode your bikes to church. Is that true? She said, yes. I said, Pam, how far is it from where you live to the church? She said, I don't know. But I knew because I'd picked her up six consecutive years for the dance. I said, it's eight miles. Eight miles of riding through traffic in town. I said, did you ride in your church clothes? She said, no, I had a backpack. You can't be sweaty in church. I said, Pam, about how long did it take you to ride from where you live to church? 
She said, two hours. I said, Pam, you rode your bike with a backpack on in city traffic for two hours to come to church, and you changed your clothes, went to church, and then rode two hours home? She said, yep. I said, Pam, why would you do that? I'll never forget her answer. Or the way in which she delivered it. She spoke almost as if shouting immediately. It's Easter and you have to be in church on Easter. I said, yes, you do, Pam. Thank you. God's special people group under the leadership of Merle and Luann touched the lives of so many people in our church. I remember specifically one time someone said, we visited your church at the contemporary service and when we got our bulletin and was greeted, we wondered if we were in the right place. And then after the service, we knew we were in the right place. Luann and Merle, they didn't cross the sea to be missionaries, they just crossed the street. Because you see, God's call to be on assignment as a missionary doesn't mean you have to cross the sea, you just have to see the cross. And when we see the cross, we are reminded whose we are, why we're here, and what we're to be about. I'm so glad that Luann and Merle said yes to God's assignment, stepped forward, and God touched and blessed God's special people. They touched my life, and it'll never be the same. I believe Jesus' prayer still applies today. He wants his church to reflect his glory, to be united in his love, and to be set apart and on assignment for him. And toward that end, I pray you will join me that we will labor together, not forgetting why we are here or whose we are. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this time together in your presence with others who love you and believe in you. Continue to guide us and use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.